The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, Turkey has a pretty interesting history with NATO and and its allies. I like to think of it as sort of a can't live with them, can't live without them sort of situation. It joined NATO in 1952. It sits astride the Middle East and the Black Sea. It also hosts a major air base where the U.S. stores nuclear weapons. So it's clearly our strategic interest to, I think, have Turkey aligned with the West and a member of NATO as frustrating as they can be. Turkey realizes this. They they realize that they hold this position within the alliance, and they've thrown their weight around many times. This isn't the first time. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 6th, 2022. You've probably heard that Finland and Sweden have applied to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. You might have even heard that their applications were held up a bit because Turkey objected to them. And, NATO being a mutual security alliance, any one member can prevent new countries from joining. But you might not understand the full dynamics behind Turkey's obstinance and the annoyance that it has triggered in other NATO members' governments. To discuss this background, I was joined by two people with different angles on it all. Nick Danforth is the author of The Remaking of Republican Turkey, Memory and Modernity Since the Fall of the Ottoman Empire. Rachel Rizzo is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Europe Center, where she focuses on European security, NATO, and the transatlantic relationship. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 6th, Turkey, NATO, and Alliance Membership. Nick, let's get some background first before we get to the events of the last couple of weeks in and around NATO. Let's talk about the background, Turkey and its, I I think it's fair to say, obsession with Kurdish terrorism and other potential threats and its use of its relationships with NATO and NATO members to try to reduce this threat. So walk through the background of Turkey's government, its attitude towards Kurds and their fundraising and other issues in Europe, and how NATO has played into that over the years. Right. So Turkey has been fighting a counterinsurgency campaign against Kurdish separatists since the 80s. Uh, During long stretches of this history, it actually got substantial support from NATO uh, in this campaign including during periods where the Turkish army was doing some, quite frankly, brutal uh, things to Kurdish civilians, Kurdish villagers in the course of this counterinsurgency. Uh, 
And during the passage of time, particularly given the way the war in Syria developed, uh, the United States and some of its NATO partners have begun supporting Syrian Kurdish fighters uh, who are closely aligned with the PKK, the group that Turkey has been fighting against, uh, as allies against ISIS. Uh, Turkey, even when the United States was supporting Turkey in its counterinsurgency campaign against the PKK, people in Turkey, for reasons we can discuss, were convinced that the United States was actually supporting the PKK to undermine Turkey. Uh, now that the United States is actually supporting, legitimately, clearly, obviously supporting the PKK's partner in Syria, uh, these longstanding fears uh, have gone into overdrive. In this context, what it should also be noted that a result of the violent fighting in the 80s and the particularly, particular 90s, uh, and as a result of some of the techniques that the Turkish government used, like destroying Kurdish villages, uh, there were a number of Kurdish refugees that left Turkey a number of them ended up uh, in Sweden, which led to a large politically active Kurdish population um, in Sweden, which is, as we'll see, at the center of this debate today. Let me let me dig down on that a little bit. So the Kurdish populations uh, across Europe, but in places like Sweden, uh, Germany, and other places, before the last few weeks, were we seeing a lot of Turkish interactions with these governments to try to, in the positive sense, ensure that there is no terrorism being planned in or funds being raised for terrorism in these countries. On the negative side, for the Turks to harass legitimate political discourse that they said yes. related to terrorism that didn't. Talk through that a little bit. Right. So you have large Turkish and Kurdish diasporas uh, scattered around Europe, particularly in Scandinavia and Germany. Uh, they were politically active. This was something that was of great concern to the Turkish government. Uh, under Turkish pressure, most European countries in the United States recognized the PKK as a terrorist organization. Uh, I think a lot of foreign observers understand why Turkey's angry at the PKK. It's a brutal organization, uh, particularly in the past. It carried out a number of very violent acts. Uh, and yeah, I think the general attitude in the West is that this is a problem, as much as we might not like the PKK, this is a problem that was created by the Turkish government's mistreatment of the Kurds, and this is a problem that has to be solved by political negotiations between Turkey and the Kurds. Uh, the reason this has become so sensitive for Ankara is that you do have these large politically active Kurdish minorities in European countries. They raise money for the PKK. They engage in a lot of very public uh, activities in support of the PKK. Their European countries do enforce counter-terror laws not as vigorously as the Turkish government would like. Uh, and in some cases, there's simply a disparity in that European laws uh, respect the freedom of speech that, in, you know, to wave a PKK flag uh, in the streets of Stockholm, whereas by Turkish law, that would be illegal. That's terrorist propaganda. Um, so you have both the disparity between how seriously the EU, some EU countries take the PKK as a terrorist organization and the simple fact that EU laws don't allow for the kind of crackdown the Turkish government would like. Right. So you have the easy job, Nick. You're going to be talking primarily about one country. Rachel, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you to, to speak to all of NATO. So you've got two dozen plus countries to summarize or, or pull examples from. So Nick's talking about the Turkish government perspective on the PKK, about terrorism versus you know freedom of speech versus uh, terrorist activity. What has the general NATO approach or specific examples from prominent NATO countries to 
the the unique nature of Turkey within the alliance uh, up and up until recent times? Well, Turkey has a pretty interesting history with NATO and and its allies. I like to think of it as sort of a can't live with them, can't live without them sort of situation. It joined NATO in 1952. It was one of the alliance's earliest members. It clearly aligned itself with the West uh, during the Cold War against the Soviet Union. It also gives NATO a very crucial strategic position right at the intersection of Europe and Asia. It sits astride the Middle East and the Black Sea. It also hosts a major air base where the U.S. stores nuclear weapons. So it's clearly our strategic interest to, I think, have Turkey aligned with the West and a member of NATO as frustrating as they can be. As I say this, Turkey realizes this. They they realize that they hold this position within the alliance, and they've thrown their weight around many times. This isn't the first time uh, relating to Finnish and Swedish accession into the alliance. In 2009, uh, Erdogan blocked the appointment of Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the new NATO secretary general from Denmark, because he thought that Denmark was too tolerant of cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And again, as Nick mentioned, too sympathetic to Kurdish terrorists uh, based in in Turkey, as a Kurdish terrorists in, in quotation marks, of course. And basically what it took from NATO was this sort of cajoling and this promise by President Obama that NATO would uh, appoint a Turk to a leadership position within NATO. So he got this face-to-face meeting like he wanted. Um, We saw this happen again in 2020 when he sent this gas exploration ship which was backed by fighter jets pretty close to Greek waters. And France scrambled and sent ships to support Greece. These are all NATO members. We also saw him water down the statement on Belarus after it hijacked the plane and and, and shot it down. So we've really seen Turkey throw its weight around uh, in alliance matters in more ways than one throughout the years. And so when the Finnish and Swedish uh, public opinion started to change over the last few months, and it became clear that they would indeed seek NATO membership, it was interesting to think about how Turkey was going to respond to that. And indeed, they did try to mm-hmm. um, use their use their influence and weight to gain some concessions out of those two countries. And I think that's understandable in some ways based on the history. So Nick, from Erdogan's yes. perspective, personally, you know, look at what happened in those cases Rachel mentioned, where he, you know, he raises and the Turkish government raises some issues, and they get their FaceTime with the U.S. president. They get at least lip service to the things they care about. Um, no surprise that when an opportunity comes up of the need for NATO unanimity to allow new members. Yes that Turkey was going to flex its muscles again. Did did it surprise you at all that Turkey used this as an opportunity to raise these issues anew? No. And as Rachel laid out very clearly, yeah, this fits with a longstanding pattern um, of what people in NATO have called blackmail, of what people in Ankara, you know, again, understandably see as, you know, rightly or wrongly, we're members of this defensive alliance. We contribute to the alliance's security. We take their concerns, I think, especially about Islamic terrorism, seriously. 
Uh, and the frustration anger from Ankara is that the alliance doesn't take our concerns seriously in return. Now, again, we can argue about whether that's a justifiable interpretation, but from Erdogan's point of view, the yeah, this is another reminder uh, to NATO that it ultimately needs Turkey, and this is an opportunity for him to ensure that the alliance takes Turkey's concerns more seriously. Did you get the sense that, and, and I don't know when to put the time frame on this, but let's say that it's early this year, January, February. Did you get the sense from Erdogan's perspective that there was more political pressure on him to do this? Or was it more just force of habit that this is just an opportunity and he's not going to miss it in order to hammer those points home? There's always a debate when Erdogan does this stuff about whether it's motivated by a real foreign policy vision or domestic political concerns. I think it's always been both. Uh, and, you know, again, he's been consistent in seeing he sees Turkey as an important country. He sees Turkey as an important country whose interests aren't being taken seriously enough by its neighbors. Uh, and he, his longstanding goal and a goal that he receives a great deal of political support at home for advancing or trying to advance uh, is to use, you know, in some cases, military power in his near abroad, in other cases, diplomatic leverage in situations like NATO in order to try to advance what I think people across the Turkish political spectrum see as legitimate goals. And it's worth pointing out just quickly, I mean, look, from people in the opposition, there was a lot of criticism of the way Erdogan went about this, uh, especially amongst retired diplomats. You know, the idea that he did it in such an aggressive and such a public way, I think people rightly pointed out was not necessarily as effective as doing this behind the scenes, as trying to exert the same leverage in a more subtle way. Uh, but again, the basic goal he was pushing for is one that people in Turkey are widely sympathetic to. Um, so again, I don't think domestic political pressure is the only reason he's doing it, but it certainly plays well for him domestically. I was going to add one thing. I mean, what Erdogan was able to gain in his meetings with Swedish and Finnish leaders was basically them saying that they would be less tolerant of these groups that Erdogan and Turkey views as terrorists but also extradite, because it was around 73 people. And they agreed to do that. But now, based on how NATO accession protocols work, they signed the protocols today, and now it goes to national parliaments. And so Turkey will, I think, use this tool again when it comes to actually signing off on Finnish and Swedish membership. Um, the Turkish foreign minister has said fin Finland and Sweden have agreed to these terms. Now the question is, will they act upon them? And so they can actually continue to hold Finnish and Swedish NATO membership hostage in to uh, make sure that these two countries actually abide by what is written in this trilateral agreement that was signed in Madrid last week. Okay, there's there's a lot in there, and I want to march through each of those things you said. Let's go back chronologically to the beginning of this. Uh, Rachel, talk through the NATO process, because honestly, at least in the U.S., I think the major media did a, a disservice to its readers and, and listeners, because when 
Finland and Sweden announced that they were seeking NATO membership. Some of the headlines were as bad as NATO has two new members. And they kind of skipped the whole application uh, process, the NATO invitation to the members, the accession protocols, the ratification. All of that was summarized as Finland and Sweden joining NATO. So talk through the process of the North Atlantic Treaty, um, how it is that a, a country can become a member and what it requires. And then we'll get to some of the specifics of the trilateral memorandum and other other things. Well, there are a few things I think are worth noting here. The first is that NATO is a consensus-based organization. Every major decision that NATO makes has to be made at consensus. Given that there are 30 members today, each member has to agree on this decision. So Finland and Sweden cannot be invited to join NATO without all 30 members agreeing to invite them. And that's really what Turkey was blocking. What's also interesting is how Sweden and Finland's approach to NATO membership has changed over the last few months. They have been famously militarily neutral for decades. They have joined the European Union as part of this economic bloc. But militarily, although they've they've been close partners of NATO, they have stayed militarily neutral. There really hasn't been public support in either country for NATO membership throughout the years. That drastically changed and very quickly after Russia invaded Ukraine in, in February. So really, Finland and Sweden are answering to their publics when it comes to them um, proceeding with uh, NATO applications now. So basically what happens is finally we got all 30 members to agree to invite them to join the alliance. Now every country has to sign off on their application. Um, the last time we did this was uh, when North Macedonia joined, when Montenegro joined over the last few years. So there, there have been multiple rounds of NATO enlargement throughout the years. So this is going to be the latest one. And the hope is that the U.S. Congress will be able to sign off on this accession before August recess. We're not sure if that's going to happen. The mm -hmm. hope is that it is. But like I said before, Turkey's parliament has to, has to sign off on this. And uh, Nick will know more about the inner workings of Turkish parliament and Erdogan's relationship with that body. But the question is, what happens now? And will Turkey be able to block this yet again? Okay, we will. We will definitely come back to that. But Nick, I want to hit you on this point. So the NATO process begins. Sweden and Finland, their governments responsive to public opinion after the invasion of uh, Ukraine, decide that they want to become part of NATO. They let that be known to NATO. And then last week, we have the summit in Madrid, where it's uncertain as we're going in whether Turkey will, in effect, release its hold on the, on the application or not. What happened in Madrid, and what did Turkey walk out with to allow it to say, yes, we will allow the formal application to come in and the accession protocols to begin? Right. That gets to the heart of this by way of answering uh, and following up on some of the things that Rachel said. I think it's worth taking a step back and looking at how the entire way this process has played out really demonstrates that it's impossible to talk about Turkish diplomacy 
without looking at the specific way Erdogan has personalized uh, foreign policy making in Turkey and uh, the justice system in Turkey. Because both in the diplomatic course of events and in some of the lingering issues that Rachel alluded to about extradition requests that Turkey has, uh, again, this isn't the old Turkey you're dealing with. This is very personalized Erdogan's Turkey. Uh, And so in part, as Rachel said, Finland and Sweden were very cautious. They had concerns about making the jump to NATO membership. One of the things that made them really upset was in their telling they asked all of the other NATO members if there were going to be objections, if there were going to be problems, if they went ahead with this. And according to the Finnish government, Turkey said no. And so there was an added sense of betrayal there. Uh, And again, that's something that other Turkish governments might have tried to use this leverage. But I think absent the deterioration of the foreign ministry that took place under Erdogan, absent the the capriciousness of Erdogan's own personal approach to foreign policy, you wouldn't have had that kind of development. Similarly, right, the impasse was broken. Writ large, everyone knew what Turkey was asking for. It was asking for more consideration of its concerns about terrorism in particularly Sweden. Finland hasn't been on its radar as much. There isn't a big Kurdish population in Finland. It was asking for an end for Swedish support to the YPG, the Kurdish group in Syria. It was asking for an end to the arms embargo that Sweden imposed after a previous Turkish military operation in Syria, and it was asking for the extradition of a large number of people, including some who undoubtedly committed violent acts and including many whose crimes were purely political. Uh, And the result, going into this, many people thought lifting the arms embargo was fair. Uh, You know, you're joining a defensive alliance with another country. It's a little silly to say that you'll go to their defense in a war, but you're not going to sell them weapons. Right, right. Um, Swedish support for the YPG had been exaggerated by Ankara. People didn't think that was as big as anyone said it was. So the idea that that was hashed out wasn't a huge surprise. The issue, and this is why it's going to be potentially ugly when it comes to getting this ratified in parliament, is that, yes, Erdogan is claiming Turkey agreed to extradite uh, 73 uh, largely Kurdish, also some other people. Um, Finland and Sweden have said they've agreed to review these extradition requests. Uh, And given my understanding of what the evidence against these people looks like, Sweden will probably review them and say, nope, sorry. Uh, And then if Ankara feels betrayed, this potentially is going to be a problem. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others. 
and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. You know, I'm looking at the trilateral memorandum right now, and I got to say, you know, having having worked briefly at the State Department and, and coming up with diplomatic language to make both sides of an agreement feel like they got something, this sure looks like it, because from the Turkish side, it says that you know, after the 
the boilerplate about unwavering solidarity and cooperation among all partners of NATO. It gets to the fact that Finland and Sweden will not provide support to the YPG PYD, the the Syrian offshoots, if you will, of the PKK. Um, Finland and Sweden unambiguously condemn all terrorist organizations perpetrating attacks against Turkey. They even express solidarity with Turkey and the families of the victims. Finland and Sweden confirm that the PKK is a prescribed terrorist organization and commit to prevent activities of the PKK and all other terrorist organizations and their extensions. For, so from Turkey's point of view, it's like, yeah, we, we got it. You know, Tur- Finland and Sweden even agree to discuss Turkey's pending deportation or extradition requests expeditiously and thoroughly. So Turkey, Erdogan can go to the Turkish people and say, look, you know, Look how good I, I got them to agree to do all this stuff. But if if I'm the Finnish and Swedish governments, I can look at this and say, as I think officials of both countries have said quietly, um, there's nothing really new here. We oppose terrorism by our own definition, and any potential extraditions are going to have to go through our judicial process anyway. So what has really changed here? It it seems to me, just as an outsider to the the Turkish details, that Turkey knew that it wasn't going to get much more than this, but it wanted to be able to both have something to show to, to its people, and then, as Rachel points out, have something later on in the process of ratification to say, you promised you were going to do more, and we're looking to see whether you'll actually go through with it. So for both of you, how do you react to the trilateral memorandum? Nick from the Turkish side, and then Rachel from the point of view of Luxembourg and all of the other NATO members. No, I'm glad you read some passages from that because it's, yeah, it's beautifully written. It's beautifully ambiguous in terms of what it's actually saying. And that was exactly what was needed to get past the hurdle at the Madrid summit. But as you said, unless, and we've seen no evidence of this, there was a behind the scenes understanding of what this meant in more practical terms. It's entirely possible that the same issues which were papered over in this document will rear their heads as we get close to the actual ratification of the Nordic membership. Yeah, I would agree with that. This document is diplo speak. It's perfection in that way because either side can really decipher it how they want. I want to point out one thing that I find very interesting about this trilateral memorandum. It says, and and they use Turkey's new name. Um, so just just a, just a, a note on that. So it says that Finland and Sweden will address Turkey's pending deportation or extradition requests of terror suspects expeditiously and thoroughly dot, 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 in accordance with the European Convention on Extradition. Now, remember, Finland and Sweden are members of the European Union. They're not going to extradite their own citizens. So if any of these individuals that Turkey is looking at have gained Swedish or Finnish uh, citizenship, that's a no-go. But the European Convention on Extradition says that it does not apply to political or military offenses, and any party may refuse to extradite its own citizens to a foreign country. Well, there you go. Well, I I see this rearing its ugly head at at another point when this comes to uh, Turkish Parliament actually signing off 
on welcoming Finland and Sweden. So we've jumped over one hurdle, but there are other hurdles ahead that I think are going to be issues. And I just briefly add that, you know, as I understand, I don't follow Swedish politics closely, but one of the concerns amongst people on the Swedish left about joining NATO is suddenly when Sweden becomes part of a major military organization, it will face pressure to compromise its values in support of broader defensive aims. And so here, as soon as uh, Sweden applies, Turkey comes along and says, actually, yes, we are asking you to compromise your values right now in order to join this military organization. Uh, Here are a list of names of people who have not committed crimes, as you understand them, that we would like you to deport so we could jail unjustly and potentially torture. It's almost like it was perfectly set up to poke at that sense of that sense of concern about the moral stakes of making this shift on Sweden's part. Yeah. And I do think that the United States was, I think they're happy clearly that Finland, Sweden, and Turkey were able to work through these issues together, but perhaps the United States thinks that Finland and Sweden bent a little bit too much for the Turks. Hmm. On this issue. Yeah. There's also the argument that's been put out there that Erdogan wasn't really negotiating with Helsinki in Stockholm, that this was really a a play with Washington. And the evidence for this comes out with the results from Madrid, right? So the idea of uh, Turkey getting a meeting with President Biden and, you know, does this have something to do with F-16s? So Nick, from the Turkish perspective, do you think that this was really a two-level game that, yeah, they kind of cared about Finland and Sweden, but in fact, they were looking at the the larger U.S. relationship. It's hard for me to tell. I mean, that there was a real sense of grievance on Turkey's part, whether they wanted that to be addressed with concessions from Finland and Sweden or concessions from the U.S. or both, or they were just seeing what they could get. I'm really not sure. I do think the Biden administration handled this well. They tried to keep the negotiations as limited as possible. They tried to keep this focus between Turkey and the Nordics, uh, waited to see if that could get results, didn't uh, give the impression that they were eager or willing to offer Turkey further concessions on the U.S. side to try to sweeten the deal uh, until the last minute when it looked like things were getting close and the U.S. stepped in, I think, very effectively to say, yes, if what you want, if what sweetens this deal is a little bit of FaceTime with Biden, we'll give you that. And if what you want is some positive commitment from uh, the U.S. administration to support selling a new round of F-16s to Turkey, again, it's not binding because it's ultimately Congress that's going to make this decision, but Biden was willing to offer Turkey a little bit of support on that front. Um, And so I think, you know, again, we'll see how this turns out, but the U.S. managed to push everyone over uh, the line with as minimal involvement and as minimal concessions on Washington's part as I think was probably possible. Rachel, um, I want to run one thing by you and Nick, get, get your perspective on it too. One line in the trilateral memorandum that came out of this struck me as o- almost laughable. Uh, near the end, one of the bullet points is that Turkey, Finland, and Sweden commit to fight disinformation. And I thought, wow, you know, from the Turkish perspective, disinformation is some of what is considered political discourse in Finland and Sweden. And from the Finnish and Swedish perspective, 
fighting disinformation would be telling the Turks not to, you know, manipulate these things. So fighting disinformation, putting into this memorandum that all parties agree to do it is essentially setting them up to commit to shouting each other down. Um, Because NATO doesn't, NATO overall, but these members don't see things the same way Turkey does on many of these issues. Do you think that there's something in this memorandum that will lead to actual, not more conflict, physical conflict, but actually raise up tensions if the parties choose to implement some of these bullets? So for me, the term disinformation has become so nebulous that it's almost meaningless at this point mm-hmm. because of how different, as you mentioned, states, depending on their own at-home political situation, define it. And so when I read notes like this, when I read um, agreements talking about fighting disinformation, another point of this bullet point says preventing domestic laws from being abused for the benefit or promotion of terrorist organizations. This does sort of just add to the, I think, confusion and potential for an agreement like this to be interpreted in different ways by each party. But I think this also gets into a broader question of what NATO is as a community beyond just being a military alliance. Increasingly, and especially as the alliance grows, it's now going to be 32 members when Finland and Sweden join. It's still consensus-based. There is no mechanism to kick a country out, for example. And so as countries diverge in values, as democracy starts to wane in, in some countries, I worry that political paralyzation will become even more prevalent as um, the security situation continues to change and major decisions are based on these somewhat esoteric topics like what is disinformation and how are we fighting it? And does it count uh, as something under Article 5, for example, or does it count as an Article 4 consultation under the Washington Treaty? I worry that we're heading into an era of even more uh, of a fractured alliance and a paralyzed alliance, the bigger that it grows and the more that values start to diverge. Picking up on that, Nick, and and broadening it, do you think that we've simply set the stage for a round two coming up with the ratification and perhaps raising the opportunity for more frequent such flare-ups in the future? Yes, we've set the stage for a round two for this particular issue. We've certainly set the stage for rounds three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Every time there's a NATO decision that needs to be made over which Turkey has a uh, veto power, there are going to be future issues like this. And for a long time, people have been saying NATO should try to figure out a way to deal with this. But given the structure of the alliance, given the need for consensus and unanimity, it's not clear what that mechanism is. If people who understand NATO better than I do want to try to figure that out, uh, I think that would make it much easier to deal with Turkey. The bigger problem I'd go on to say is that, look, Turkey's never been the most cooperative NATO member going back to the beginning. Uh, Turkey's never been the most democratic NATO member. 
uh, going back to the beginning. But during the Cold War, uh, the United States, the rest of NATO and Turkey shared a threat perception. Everyone was focused on the Soviet Union. Uh, and even to the extent Turkey was more concerned about Kurdish separatism, Kurdish separatism was being supported by the Soviet Union. So it all worked out very well. The issue now is not, I mean, for those of us who care about Turkish democracy, part of the issue is Turkish democracy and Erdogan's authoritarianism. But at a more practical level, the issue for NATO, uh, which has been willing to work with an authoritarian Turkey before, is that it now has to deal with an anti-Western Turkey. It now has to deal with a Turkey that doesn't share threat perceptions. Uh, it has to deal with a leader who's very explicitly said that he thinks the United States and the EU are a bigger threat to Turkey than Russia is. Uh, and this perception has not changed with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that ultimately is going to be the challenge for the United States and NATO going forward. I mean, yes, I think value should be part of it. But beyond values, there's such a profound divergence in worldview uh, that that makes a functional alliance difficult. Nick, let me follow up on that with some news that I think broke yesterday, which is that Turkey did seize a Russian ship that was full of grain taken from Ukraine. And of course, you see people immediately react to that and say, okay, Turkey's coming around. You know, They see right. Russia as the greater threat, and we're all back in one happy family again. I'm, I'm guessing that you would caution us not to extrapolate from one data point. Right. There's been a profound desire to, uh, for people who were reared in the good old days of U.S.-Turkish alliance, they always want to see Turkey coming around. Is this idea of Turkey as the prodigal son, that at the end of the day, it's going to return and it's going to get welcomed back into the fold. And hopefully that will happen one day, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. And this desperation to see any positive development as proof of some kind of fundamental reorientation of Erdogan's thinking uh, strikes me as a little desperate and ultimately counterproductive. And yes, I mean, the implication was that Turkey was allowing a lot of ships of stolen Ukrainian grain to go through without uh, stopping them. It finally stopped one under pressure from the United States and Ukraine. That's great. It suggests that as always, the balance is kind of constantly in flux and under greater pressure or under different sets of incentives, Ankara might do some more things that Ukraine and the West are happy about. Uh, but then the next day, it will do some things that Russia uh, and the Assad regime or Iran are happy about. Um, you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, what's frustrating to me watching this is that Ankara is very explicit about the fact that it's pursuing an independent foreign policy, the fact that it's not going to be beholden to the U.S. and NATO anymore. Uh, and, it, you know, take them at their word, I say. Let me uh, close out with a question to each of you about the, the future here. So, Rachel, where do you see this going in terms of overall? You've talked a little bit about overall NATO decision-making and how it could simply become more challenging over time because of numbers alone. But in terms of attitude towards Turkey in particular, uh, do you see this episode as merely causing eye rolls in some European capitals? Or do you think it's it's more than that, that it's contributing to a belief that Turkey may not be a reliable ally? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think it goes back to something I said at the beginning, which is that Turkey understands that the West needs it, and the West understands that it, that it needs Turkey, which means that both sides are willing to work within those parameters, as frustrating as it may be, because it's better to have Turkey in the fold than outside of the fold. But this is also why NATO is trying some other tactics 
to make sure that major strategic level issues don't bubble up to the top and create issues for decision making at the North Atlantic Council level. So putting things in the strategic concept about deepening consultations bilaterally between states, for example, Turkey and Greece, to make sure that issues that may be between two countries don't create a situation where the alliance is paralyzed and can't move forward with certain decision makings because two sides can't agree with each other on certain things. So I do think this caused eye rolls, but I do think that it was not unsurprising. I think it was expected. I was honestly expecting issues from Hungary as well, but I think that's probably part of a different conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Turkey knows how to play the game. It knows its role and both sides are sort of able to deal with each other because of the importance of the relationship. And we, we shouldn't rule out Hungary as an obstacle yet, given the ratification issue. It may be that Orban has learned from Erdogan and, and may decide to, to use that as his opportunity to, to make a point. Nick, yes. um, let's close out with a, a Turkish thought. There, it is possible, I, I, I guess unlikely, but possible that some of this dynamic is specific to Erdogan and his, and his leadership style and what he's done to and with the Turkish state. So let's say that Erdogan were to, for whatever reason, fall off the scene in the next few months, and you have a post-Erdogan scenario in Turkey. Do you think the underlying dynamics are such that we would see much of this same behavior, even if Erdogan is no longer there? Right. That's the million dollar question. No, I guess the million dollar question is, will we ever get to a point where that becomes the million dollar question? But that is a fascinating question. That's a lot of millions of dollars. (laughs) Right. If Turkey is scheduled for an election next summer, were Erdogan to lose, depending on who exactly replaced him, look, there'd be continuity and change. A lot the frustrations on Turkey's part would be, uh, would remain very real. Uh, The profound divergence over how, the West and Turkey viewed the Kurdish issue would remain very real. In the best case scenario, you'd have a Turkish government that would begin pursuing peace talks with the PKK again, as Erdogan did briefly. Uh, That, I think, in the long term is the only solution to this problem. It would make life much easier for all of Turkey's allies, ultimately for the Turkish people as well. Uh, That's a little difficult to imagine, given the political climate in Turkey now, even if Erdogan were to lose. So yes, I mean, I think a lot of these, a lot of Turkish frustrations with NATO and with the West writ large would remain. A lot of people in the Turkish opposition uh, have very strong and negative feelings about the West. But at the end of the day, with Erdogan gone, what we would hope is that you'd have a more functional, more professionalized Turkish foreign ministry, uh, and you would have a Turkish judiciary, which you know actually investigated people for terrorism and only convicted them if they were guilty of terrorism, rather than being an arm of Erdogan's political repression. Uh, and that in itself would help uh, smooth out a lot of the kind of issues you're seeing between Turkey and Sweden right now. Okay. So I lied. <laughs> Rachel, I do have one more question for you. Uh, do you see, with your knowledge of NATO and, and its members, do you see that Sweden and Finland will be full members with ratification by all NATO members by the end of this calendar year? By the end of this calendar year, I would probably say not. If you look at how long a session has taken for other countries, it can take up to a year. And so if we're having this conversation a year from now, 
I would, uh, <laughs> I would suspect mm. that they would be full members. But if we're looking at the end of December, I, I would be on the fence and probably say not. But I do think it's going to happen. Well, I look forward to revisiting that with you uh, then, if not sooner, and Nick to touching base on Turkey as well. Thank you both for joining us on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of the Lawfare Podcast and some of our other products by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You can also get access to special events and content available only to material supporters. Remember to rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts and listen to our other products, including Rational Security, Chatter, The Aftermath, and Allies. This podcast is edited by Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo, who is also our audio engineer this time. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.